Hey everyone, welcome to an all new Suiting Up presented by Public.com and OutSystems. This is episode number 11 of season three. There are 15 total. We just announced that last week. And I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Today's show, it's a one-on-one conversation with the commissioner of Major League Soccer, Mr. Don Garber. And I want to give you a little lead in. Don's career, it's a historic one in the business of sports. He first started on the agency side of the house, then went to the NFL in an entry-level marketing role. He grinded all the way up to several executive positions before getting tapped by one of the league's owners, Mr. Bob Kraft, to come build Major League Soccer. That was in 1999. And this was the time when soccer in the U.S. was held together by the World Cup. Before the Premier League, La Liga, the Messis and Ronaldos made their way to the U.S. via major network deals, soccer at the time faced a ton of scrutiny, a bunch of stereotypes. And trust me, I know what that's like, how relatable it can be. I play lacrosse. And very few people were willing to invest, sponsor, or even air the games. Then Garber figured it all out. With a lot of risks, major bets, he amassed partnerships via a joint ownership model he created in North America called Soccer United Marketing. I'll pause there so you can hear the rest from Don, but suffice to say that teams were going for $5 million bucks when he started to now upwards of $325 million a pop in franchise fees. This is the history of MLS with Commissioner Don Garber. Today's show is made possible by our presenting sponsors, FirstPublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social so you can follow other investors. Follow me, I'm at Paul Rabel. Discover companies to believe in and invest with any amount of your money. They democratize trading and give us a space to talk about. Check out Public.com and OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps for web and mobile so you can focus on your business needs. The PLL used OutSystem in 2020 to design our COVID app for the championship series, ensuring the health and safety of all the players, staff, and coaches. We continue to work with OutSystems. You should too. Visit OutSystems.com. All right, Don, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, Paul. I love talking to you. It's really, it's it's actually, some of these things are always about what you're thinking about and kind of expand the PLL brand. But I, for me, I learn a lot when I chat with you, so I really enjoy the time. I appreciate that. You've been a mentor. And uh, naturally, we're going to, spend a lot of time on the business of the MLS and what you've been able to build over the last two decades. But denoted by a lot of our guests on the show, I want to first start by talking about what shaped your career in sports. We've had a few executives that have come on and there's been different moments in their lives that galvanize this interest in games. But for you at the ground level, you were born in Queens, New York to a Russian mother, Orthodox father from Poland. What type of homegrown principles in that environment did you have exposure to and then did you play sports was it always a part of what you wanted to do for a living you know it's interesting paul i think as you know now i'm going into year 22 so you know people were kind of counting your career sort of the counting the days forward so more and more people are asking about sort of what the past was and i i really hadn't focused on that a whole lot you know this career of mine, and I think the industry overall, you're running so fast, you're never looking back. You're constantly, particularly in my MLS days, 20 plus years, always looking forward. But recently, and I don't know whether it was the 20th anniversary or whether it's just where I am in my life, there I, I have been thinking more about the foundational years. So, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, in Queens. You know, I grew up in a, in a two, uh, five of us, and we had a a two-bedroom apartment. It was a garden apartment, one of these little attached places. 
and in Queens of uh, I'm binge watching Entourage right now. So, okay, you know Queens <laughs> you is go. just Queens Boulevard. There's no place like it, man. You are what you are, man. There are no pretenses. You cannot get away with anything. It really mattered how committed you were to your family and to your friends, how committed you were to your word. And basically, and this is unfortunate, how well you could play in the schoolyard, hmm. right? So sports at that time for me in the 60s and, and 70s, you know, you would just, every season there was a different sport that you did when you got back from school. As a latchkey kid, my, my mother was a teacher. She didn't come home until later in the day. And my dad was an accountant. So we come home from school, you get on your bike. I went to PS 32 and in the summer you played, you know, basketball and, you know, a metal backboard and a metal rim. And you played softball or stick ball and, you know, you were sliding on concrete. I'm not making this shit up. It was for real. <laughs> you play, you know, tackle football and you played on a little blade of grass or yep. you played touch football in those days. And, you know, you hung out all day in the schoolyard. So very diverse community. So I think my my de the development of how I view diversity, I think, was shaped when I was a young kid. And, you know, uh, listen, sports was a big part of my life. But interestingly, Paul, I was never a huge fan. You know, you hmm. find a lot of people that want to go into the sports industry. And why do you want to go into sports? Well, I, I love the Mets. You know, I, yeah. I love lacrosse. I got to work in lacrosse. I mean, I my father was not a sports fan. Uh, my older brother, two years to the day older, not a big fan. So I will tell you that my affinity for the industry is more about the industry itself and less about fan avidity. Hmm. That being said, I did cut school to go to the, see the 69 Mets and uh, in the World Series. I ran on the field. I collected my grass. I planted it, you know, in a little place, you know, in the back of, uh, of uh, our co-op little garden apartment. You know, I've been to and I saw the Knicks in that same year win the championship. You know, I was a I played a lot of sports. I played, you know, I played basketball. I played baseball. I played hockey. I, I played just about everything that you could possibly play. Lacrosse wasn't a part of the world I grew up in, as you probably know. But at the end of the day, it helped shape a lot of who I am today. And that era, you, you say, playing in the backyard in the 60s, that was right at the turn for the NFL that was one of the early sports leagues to adopt the modern medium at the time in television. And we think about fast forward to today, the modern form of media consumption is social and digital. But your first job in sports was with the NFL. You're a marketing manager. When I'm like going through this research, I'm thinking about, God, I get to pick Don Garber's brain, the commissioner of MLS, the guy who changed an industry here in North America. And he started as a marketing manager in the NFL. Pete Rozelle started on the marketing side. He was the commissioner at the time you got in the NFL. He was one of the youngest commissioners in any sport in sport history. Was there an attraction to working for the NFL or someone like Pete at the time, being on the marketing side of the house? How'd you get that job and then <laughs> your career going through? Well, it's so incredibly timely. I, I currently have raised my family in New Jersey and we're moving on Tuesday. Okay. So I'm a pack rat. I have every piece of every article, you know, I, I've got memorabilia from my NFL days and so many, I mean, letters. I have a, a letter from Paul Tagliabue when I founded the NFL Experience. I, I have all these memories from those days and I was looking at them in the past few days as I'm packing all that shit up and throwing most of it out. Yep. And I, I came out of school, I ended up getting a job in PR. The agency that, uh, that I worked for at that time was founding a sports division 
and I worked on some track and field related things. I worked on, you know, um, the Miller Light campaign. I used to travel around with all those guys for the taste great, great, less filling campaign. Yeah. So I had <laughs> sort of a my marketing background was pushing me to sports as opposed to sports being a, a passion, a career passion. There were no sports degrees. There were no sports programs and NFL properties was really the first sports marketing sort of division in really in the industry, Paul. You had IMG doing what it was doing. Yep. You had a handful of small agencies, Millsport, a guy named Jim Millman founded this agency. But then the NFL hired a bunch of consumer product marketing guys to, and this was all started with Pete Rozelle, founded out in LA and they founded NFL properties in Los Angeles mm -hmm. to manage the licensing of logos. So Pete was such a genius at that time. He said, people are making our hats. They're making our jerseys. We need to sort of authenticate that and monetize it. Formed a licensing company, NFL Properties. The owners gave all of the trademarks to a trust. That trust lasted for like 30 years and was renewed however many years ago. Hmm. And they formed a company that the owners owned. And I was one of the first sponsorship guys to work for that group. I'm working from an agency on the M&M Mars account. I took a jar of M&Ms around the country for the 84 Olympics, driving it literally in the back of a freaking pickup truck. <laughs> and you guess the number of M&Ms and you want a trip to the Olympics. No way. And that <laughs> account manager said to me, the Olympics are coming to an end. You know, why don't you go to the NFL and see if we could buy a sponsorship? So I cold called, called the NFL and I ended up having a meeting with Rick Dudley, huh. who now is the chairman of Octagon. And Rick worked for a guy named Arlen Kantarian, who had a long career in sports, ran the USTA for a decade. And I, you know, they go give me a presentation, a very formal power cell with the NFL. And I get back to my office. I'm sharing an office with three people, all who smoke cigarettes, by the way. Yeah. Sharing an office with people smoking cigarettes uh, in the uh, in the office. Yeah. And then Rick called me up and said, "Hey, I want to talk to you?" I said, "You guys are aggressive." I said, "No, I want to talk to you about a job." And I came there and that's how I got my job at the NFL and worked there selling sponsorships for many, many years. I'm sure you'll ask a question how to get to beyond that. But I started as the only guy that didn't have an MBA, that wow. didn't come out of Nestle or Nabisco or PepsiCo. And I just, you know, I was a hungry, ambitious, arrogant young guy that came in there working for a bunch of really aggressive, arrogant guys. And we made a lot of stuff happen. Did it resonate with you at the time that sports was actually more about marketing and PR than it was about, you know, NBA cr credentials and the ability to move dollars from one end to the other? I mean, I, they're, they're all important, but that's what struck me about the Roselle era and the owners saw that. And he was like, you know, I don't know if I should be the commissioner here, but no one knew how to sell the product better. I wasn't a born salesman. They taught me how to sell a brand because they were traditional brand marketing guys. Mm -hmm. So the whole approach of marketing the league, which came from Pete's vision of how do you utilize the press? How do you utilize media partners? Even back then, Monday Night Football as the ultimate expression of mass exposure of your product in prime time. I learned brand marketing from these guys. They were brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but they were traditional and I evolved from being the guy that just sold a sponsorship to the guy that developed the more unique sponsorships. 
that were more marketing oriented. I, I thought about that we needed to target young people and relaunched Pun Pass and Kick, which had been dormant for a decade. I was the guy that took Hank Williams off Monday Night Football and sold that to the record companies. And every Monday night we taped a different performer from Sting to, you know, the biggest stars in the business. Yep. And I had this task that ultimately evolved from Pete to Paul Tagliabue that basically I became the creative guy that would push the marketing and brand envelope, take the helmets off the players, try to engage with new audiences, which ultimately morphed into me engaging new audiences internationally. And I just became the less traditional guy that would take some chances. I was the first guy to say we needed to get rid of up with people and all the, the uh, to me, paying brands like Disney and, and others to have 12 minutes of a Super Bowl halftime show yep. and then working internally with the guys that produced the Super Bowl to convince them that that was valuable time. We should get a guy like Michael Jackson to do it. I launched the NFL Experience, which again was a marketing vehicle to bring the game outside of just who watched it on television, but engaged those people that were there, hundreds of thousands of them, even though most couldn't go to the game, and create physically an extension of the product both its players and the fan experience in a live festival. Yep. And the NFL experience was really a, a creative expression of the brand of the Super Bowl and personifying what, Emma, what the NFL meant to its fans. And ultimately that was my role at the league. It morphed from sales into what they branded business development and special events and all those kinds of marketing activities. And you, and then you were even involved in on the television side negotiating deals. So marketing to sales to biz dev, and then you were going international and leading the NFL affairs there. You made a comment about how the NFL's brand strategy was so strong then, and it, it makes a ton of sense because they got to where they are today by building that core fundamental structure of the shield and what it stood for. What do you think and how do you give advice to people now under you at the MLS or even any organization where you have a talented individual that either requires a little bit of patience in their role on the manager side to then senior manager to director and that balance of being an aggressor, like you said you were, coming up with ideas, but also the, the responsibility of your manager to give that cushion or give that runway to talent like yourself to develop as quickly as you did in the NFL? Because I would say a lot of organizations maybe struggle with that. Well, you know, I told this story a couple of times in my career, Paul. I've, you know, the transition for me, and I think it's a good lesson on determination and courage, right? And a, and a little bit of fear, fearlessness. You know, Rick Dudley came to me at some point and said, hey, I was, I was kind of co-managing the sponsorship business, me more on the, the outside the box sponsorships and somebody else on the traditional side. The traditional side was generating way more revenue. Mine were more revenue focused, but brand delivery. Yep. And they decided they're gonna have one guy run it. Rick came into me one day and said, hey, we made a decision, you're out. I said, what do you mean I'm out? I mean, I frankly, I think I should be having your job and I'm out. <laughs> so he, he said, hey man, we love you, but it's been a good run. I think I was there seven or eight years at that time. And I said, listen, why don't you, why don't you let me take the weekend? I've been thinking about a whole bunch of things and let me come back to you and let's see if there's an, an area that's being underserved. 
And Rick said, absolutely. If you could find something that could generate revenue for us and it could fill a void, I'm all ears. And that's where I developed this plan for this biz dev group. The NFL experience was in my mind and that was part of that. The Super Bowl sponsorship and activities were part of that. And then the programming side, the NFL quarterback challenge, the NFL's fastest man, the NFL golf classic, all of these kind of untouched programming things that NFL films didn't want to deal with. That was more film-based documentary, a snowy day in Green Bay. And I was thinking that we had through a friend of ours, we've talked about a guy, John Miller at NBC, so much open inventory where the networks just wanted anything that had a foot pigskin and a helmet in it. Yep. So I wrote that plan and Rick said, I love it. Let's take it to, to Commissioner Tagliabue and let's pitch it. Wow. And they took it. Paul said, fantastic. But the key thing to that is I didn't go home and cry, right? I could have found another job. I just knew that I had more still to do with the NFL. But I also knew that, they, they, that the NFL had a lot of holes. Even a powerful brand like that was not necessarily being served in all of the areas of opportunity. Also, the lesson for people is all the guys that I worked with, instead of looking to kick me out on my ass, worked to help me launch that new division. Hmm. So that's an expression of how I behaved in the sandbox, how I worked as a teammate, how I didn't try to step all over people, how I didn't try to take make my business look more valuable and important uh, than their business. And they helped me get it launched. That business at the, the biz dev division and events division was a really big group. It ultimately was a larger group people-wise than the sponsorship group, group wow. was over time. And then ultimately, since I was the guy that could figure things out, Paul came to me and said, you know, we have an international business. We don't have a strategy. We've got games being taken taking place. We've got this league that's taking place in Europe. We, we've got to figure out how to exploit the intellectual property of the league around the world. Why don't you go figure it out? Hmm. And I left NFL properties at that time and went to work in the league office and launched NFL International. Ultimately, Paul, I reported into a committee that was chaired by Robert Kraft and Lamar Hunt, who founded MLS. There you go. And that was my path to to Major League Soccer. Is that is that why and, and how you got tapped over to the commissioner position in MLS? Exactly how it happened. I was at an owner's meeting and Robert came over to me and he said, hey, what do you know about soccer? I said, you know, not a whole lot, to be honest. I know there's this new league out there. It was a couple of years old. And he walked over to Lamar Hunt. He said, hey, Lamar, what do you think about Don as our next commissioner? And uh, Lamar said, well, I don't like to mix my businesses. Not a good idea. And Robert said, hey, man, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of Lamar and we'll, we'll chat further over the weekend. And Paul Tagliabue had been the lawyer for the NASL, Covington and Burling. He, he, he's a soccer fan, by the way. Huh. And they approached Paul without kind of even really chatting with me about whether they were going to pursue it. And Paul said, I think it's a good idea. By the end of the weekend, they said, let's have you meet with Phil Anschutz and meet with Alan Rothenberg, who founded the league. And, you know, six months later, I was in the job. I was looking at some articles, as I told you, I'm getting packing all my stuff up and chucking it out. That press conference was, you know, who is this non-soccer guy you know, we're L.A. Times, the worst guy for the job, Ugh. this insular sport, like many emerging sports. And uh, I look back at now and I can sort of smile. But, man, it's been a long, hard, arduous, torturous 
road for 20 years. I feel that. <laughs> Have you seen Ted Lasso yet? I, I've seen it. I love it. Yeah. But that insular community, as you mentioned, it's like, hey, this guy, Don Garber's got great experience in the NFL, but he, he doesn't speak our language. Um, and, uh, and you took that on and, and obviously we're, we're able to separate what you knew needed to get done. MLS at the time had lost upwards of 250 million during its first five years. And so you're taking this job, you're probably thinking, well, shit, this could also be a, a short tenure yeah. if we can't figure <laughs> this out, but no better opportunity to roll my sleeves up. What, how much do you sit and reflect on and what type of maybe patience or poise other characteristics does it require where there's this notion that fans of sports think we're in this ivory tower playing Madden or like Sims and it's a lot of fun running leagues, <laughs> but it's so difficult behind the scenes. What would you say are some of the things that fans don't realize you go through or were going through at the time? Well, boy, I don't think the times have changed much, Paul. I don't think people realize how hard it is and you could relate to this to actually run a very complicated, diverse, and unusual business, right? Because as a commissioner, I'm both the governor of our ownership and the sport itself. At the same time, I'm an employee of those same owners. Yep. You're a caretaker of the brand. And Roger talks about that all the time, protecting the shield and, and revering the shield and promoting the shield. And so what, what job is there really that lives in the public trust? That this business lives in the public trust. Hmm. We were looking to move a team in Columbus that ultimately turned into a very difficult situation into an incredible success. Brand new owner, brand new stadium. The original owner moves to Austin, brand new stadium, launching with 30,000 season tickets. But the fans and the governor and everyone around us said, you don't really have the right to take our team, hmm. not not the owner's team, but it's our team. So throw all of that into the job as a true CEO. That's what you are when you run a league. Yep. You are responsible to all of your stakeholders. So every CEO has an obligation to shareholders and they have an obligation to, to consumers, right? But here we have obligations to each of our individual markets, our player pool, you have employees, not just staff employees, but players as employees. MLS, they actually are employed by us. Mm -hmm. You have a, a role in the international community and in the domestic community with U.S. soccer. It is so such an all-encompassing, complicated environment. Unless you're living for the fame, it's joyful because you can see the end result of it every day. But these are very difficult jobs. I mean, I love it, but it ain't easy. And a fan... It's not their job to care, Paul. Their job is turn on the TV, go into the stadium, root for or against a club, hate a player, hate an owner, hate the commissioner. That passion is so visceral. Yeah. And so I don't expect them to even be remotely mindful of what it is that I do. Frankly, if they're wondering about what I'm doing, then I'm not doing my job. They should be more concerned about the product on the field and everything around it. And, and at the time, you also were probably going through a bit of uh, an intense research phase of understanding international soccer versus the structure of what was happening with the MLS, which at the time, and I remember the shootouts and thinking that was kind of cool, but also feeling a little bit gimmicky. MLS was really aspiring in the early days to, to get as many headline attentions as possible, and they were sacrificing product. So you went in and go, 
all right, we, we have to peel that back because we have to build this thing inside out. And we talk about that a lot in lacrosse. Uh, we have a two-point line and a faster shot clock, so we want to speed the game up and make it fun for people to watch on television and go after net new fans, but you can't ignore the ethos of the game. So that was number one. But during the research, and I think this is where, frankly, the the gaming environment has helped. It helped people like me understand all of the leagues internationally, the table system, the loan system versus the trade system, the non-fixed membership system, talk the, the EPL, and that having to do with promotion and relegation. The MLS found a hybrid. You were a fixed membership, meaning no promotion and relegation. You have the season table, but you also have playoffs. What was that process like for you? And, and how did you make that decision to land where you are today? So it's a great question. So I'll go, I'll go back many years. You know, I came into this and was viscerated at the opening press conference. I literally, if you see those articles, you do any research, Paul, it's hilarious, right? <laughs> and so I, I knew I needed to listen and, and deeply take the 180 days and, you know, all the, the traditional business school theories about what you need to do to learn a business and what you need to achieve as a leader of a business. But I needed, I, I knew I needed credibility fast. Hmm. So I couldn't go in there thinking that I was smarter than even the fans, let alone smarter than those people who were founders of the league. Uh, but I, I thought it was just absurd that the, 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 the selling point for this league was being America's version of the beautiful game. And yet we thought our fans weren't smart enough or sophisticated enough to want to have a, a, an American league playing the, the beautiful game. They want to have an American version of it. Yeah. That was our owners who did that. I didn't do that. I came in within a week. I said, we got to get rid of this. Hmm. And the telling thing for me, it's a really funny story. I'm at a game in Dallas. It's in the Cotton Bowl. It's a, a shootout. You know, it was a, a qualifying for the playoffs. And the shootout comes. I'm on the sidelines because somebody's going to win the game and go forward. Some guy is cursing and yelling after you, Garber. You know, why this thing is ridiculous. And then they score. And the guy's jumping up and down. Yeah, yeah. And then they lose a couple. And then the guy's screaming and yelling. Ultimately, they won. I said, see, it all worked out. He said, I still hate the shootout. You got to change it, you asshole. So I, it just was so intuitive to me. You didn't have to be Einstein to think that it was just false. It was yeah. gimmicky. But we do a lot of research, Paul. We, you know, we don't go into this stuff. That's another thing. I think fans think that we sit in an ivory tower. Right. And just say, hmm, what am I going to do today? This seems like fun. Right. You know, we <laughs> constantly go through vigorous research, more now than even back in the day. And we have a system, a structure that allows us to make systemic changes, critical stages to our business and our rules and our approach, because all we need to do is have a majority to vote on all those changes. Now, if you're in the NBA and you want to have a three-point play, you could do that. You don't have to worry about whether they're, you're aligning or misaligning with anybody else because you drive the sport. In soccer, we're all part of the same system. So when we do make changes, it does reverberate outside the U.S. and it sometimes even, even needs their approval. Yep. Video replay with officiating, for example, which we were leaders on. But you know, we did research early on. I came in and I just said, I'm seeing all these big stars and fans are saying, where's where are the Beckhams of the world and where are the Henri's and where are the great players? And if you had them, maybe I'll pay more attention. So we changed our rules, created a designated player rule that allowed us to keep our salary cap and union system in place, have a couple of players outside it. And we brought in David Beckham. Yeah. And 
I don't know what came first, Paul, whether it was Beckham speaking to us and saying, I think I want to come to the U.S. and us figuring out how to create a mechanism for that. I think it was more likely we were working through it. A guy named Tim Lightwicky, who's a very experienced, legendary guy in our business, was working for Phil Anschutz. And he, he was spending a lot of time in Europe. He ran into Beckham somewhere and one thing led to another. And we had David in and that transformed our league during that era. Yeah. And then we continue to do research to evolve our rules and our approach and our spending to satisfy the, uh, the needs of our fans. Okay, it's halftime to the soccer reference. And there's going to be two breaks. This is the first one and our first presented by sponsor. It's public.com. They're an investing social network. It's a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. That part is special for me, the built-in community. So you can learn about companies and market trends and how to invest your money in any amount of money. I'm on there giving advice. Other people like Tony Hawk, The Breakfast Club's Angela Yee and Scott Galloway. You can follow us on there and get tips. This week, I talked about Amazon. Jeff Bezos wrote his last letter to shareholders from start to now where he transitioned from CEO to chairman. He talked about how the company's grown, how they now have amassed over 200 million global Prime subscribers and a bunch of other things. And I kind of give you that musing so you can make a decision on if you want to put some money into Amazon, even though it's an expensive stock. I'm not an investment manager, so take my comments with a grain of salt. Okay, now that I've said that, public.com also has no commission fees on standard trades, which is unique, and there are no account minimums to get started. So you can invest in literally thousands of publicly traded companies for as little as $1. You can sign up at public.com forward slash suiting up, and I'll get you started personally with $10 in free stocks so you can invest in 10 companies in theory, or at least just try the app yourself. Here's the fine print. It's valid for U.S. residents 18 and older and subject to account approval. You can see more at public.com forward slash disclosures. But in the interim, check out public.com forward slash suiting up. We have a new advertising partner. It's very exciting. And it mirrors the title of this podcast right here. The business is called Suit Shop. And let me give you the read. Ready? Tuxedo plus suit rentals are like the year of 2020, better left in the past. Seriously, why rent and deal with the hassle of poor-fitting suits that you have to return when you can own a quality, timeless look for less? That's what Suit Shop is doing on Suiting Up Podcast. They are a one-stop shop for all things suiting for any special occasion, but especially when wedding planning. Not only do they offer virtual appointments, an easy-to-use online fit finder, free swatches, and free shipping and exchanges. They also have the most size-inclusive fit range of any online suiting retailer at a price you just can't ignore. I can vouch for this. I am wearing a suit shop tuxedo to my brother Mike's wedding this week. And I went through the whole process. It's exactly how I'm reading this ad. Not to mention, here we go, I'm back in the ad. Not to mention a wedding group management dashboard to make suiting your wedding party a total breeze. Mike probably should have done that. They're $194 suiting options. That's right. They start at $194. They're for anybody and everybody, no matter your body type, race, or gender identity. That's right. They even have suits and tuxedos for women, children, and dogs. So for the water dogs out there, suit shop. I'll get to the details as if their price wasn't already a total steal. Remember that 194 number suit shop gave us a special code for our listeners. Get ready for it. Can you guess what it is? You can get 10% 
off your first purchase when you use the code SUP10 at checkout, SUP10 at checkout, okay? This makes a two-piece suit $175 to own. Again, that's SUP10, SUP10 for 10% off your first purchase, and that's valid through December of 2021. Nick, you should do it. Visit suitshop.com for more details. At the time, you had very much because of, of the league's challenges financially, and we'll get to some in a little bit, but you have a cap, and then you have someone like David Beckham, who's one of the largest superstars in the world. And a lot of people said he was in the twilight of his career, but this guy can still ball. He comes and and su- suggests interest, but he's going, I want to be in LA or New York. And so there's a lot of like management that goes into that too. Managing, you had mentioned the fans, the stakeholders, the players. A lot of players don't want to play against Beckham. It, they feel like it's a slight on them because he's at the end, tail end of his career. And then there's the economic piece. So you created the designated player rule, which essentially, and, and, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it gave teams three to four spaces per roster to go above and beyond the cap to bring over an international player. Because to your point, the MLS wanted to get to a place where the best players in the world were playing. We had some homegrown. For example, we lost Tim Howard overseas to Man United after the World Cup. So it was right around that time right? I think you're referencing 2006. So there's a lot of lobbying, I would imagine, but how did you manage, call it each cohort from owners to players? Owners first, I'm sure they all wanted Beckham. And if they weren't getting Beckham, they're probably like, what the fuck? (laughs) How am I going to be compensated or replenished? I think that there are a couple of key moments in the history of the league. We'll get to soccer night marketing and stadiums. The designated player rule was transformational. You imagine the lobbying that you have to do internally to convince a team in Columbus that they're going to be playing against a team that has at that time, one of the best players in the world. He came from Real Madrid. Yeah. You know, he, he was just going to be 31 years old and he had five more great years. I guess in soccer years at the time you're done when you're 31, but we found that's not the case now. And if you, if you see him now, Paul, and you're in great shape and I don't know how you will, how you all, how old you are. You're probably younger than David is, but the guy's an animal. He's a beast. He's a freak of nature. Yeah. He could have continued to play and he played well and, won championships. Two years into his experience with MLS, he was loaned to AC Milan and played for Milan, started for Milan. So it worked out to enhance the brand. And David was a a beacon sort of of opportunity for other players, leading to Robbie Keane and Henri and Mm -hmm. Guatemala Blanco from Mexico and this guy Rafael Marquez who was playing for Barcelona. You know, some of the best players in the world. That's transformed to players wanting to come here at the end of their careers in some cases, in many cases, to now getting players that are signing at younger ages, many South American players. You know, we just sold a player in Atlanta for almost $30 million, you know, who came to the league and came from South America now playing in the Premier League. So, you know, the worm turns, you know, and all of it is about strategy and about thinking, how do I continue to evolve my business to achieve the end result of satisfying the needs of our fans, delivering for our partners, and doing it in a way as the commissioner or the office of the commissioner, where we're keeping our owners feeling good about their investment. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we've done research that shows how parity affects winning, you know, winning and losing and how parity affects fan avidity and fan following and hired the Boston Consulting Group for two years and spent millions of dollars hmm. to understand how to segment 
our audience and the needs of different fan segments, you know, European style fans, Latino style fans, American hardcore fans, yep. all of that. Again, I know people just think we hang around and fly around in planes and sit on the sidelines and give out trophies. I mean, we are working stiffs, man. We are working our asses off delivering for ultimately all of our stakeholders. I remember when the MLS brought over Thierry Henry, one of the greatest forwards and strikers in the English Premier League at Arsenal, comes over, plays for the Red Bulls. I was a Red Bull athlete at the time. I went to a match and just coincidentally, he wasn't playing in that match. So I'm, I'm back in a suite, uh, went to the bathroom, standing in a urinal, taking a leak, hear a guy walk in speaking French with his AirPods in, stands right next to me, turn up like, oh, well, that's Henri. Uh, that's a unique experience. When are, do you think we're going to be able to get uh, Lionel Messi over to the States? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Paul. I mean, I... You can't speak to that? Or, or is it like, it would be really fucking awesome, Don, if we could get Lionel over here. I will tell you, I'm going I'm to creatively and, and carefully not answer that. Okay. <laughs> you know, look at what happened with LA who signs Zlatan. Had an unbelievable, you know, Ugh. impact on the league and on the galaxy. And now he's one of the top scorers in Europe. Yep. So, you know, it infuriates me when people say, because, you know, the soccer fans are very insular and there's almost a love-hate relationship with the game. It's why soccer and football itself is just so passionate. You know, people kill themselves over, yeah. you know, their affinity for their passion for their clubs. But, I mean, that's the best example. Zlatan is arguably right now one of the best players in Europe. And when we signed him, here's a guy coming here to retire. Mm. And, you know, these are just the things you have to deal with. And, hmm. you know, ultimately, Matt, the challenges you have to manage through, you know, running and it's still emerging brand in uh, the sports landscape. That psychology, though, is, is really interesting, especially to me, because we have plenty of stereotypes tied to lacrosse. You have the elitism of the game. You have the, the Northeast preparatory component. We know that the history of our game is invented by Native Americans in the Iroquois, formerly the Haudenosaunee. We still have some of the best and the best player in the world lives in the Onondaga Nation and, and Lyle Thompson. So you have reality and perception, what we learned in 2020, even politically, perception more times than not will supersede, unfortunately. But you were able to push through. I remember early on when I was growing up in the 90s and I was a big soccer player, is the perception that soccer players got cut from the football and basketball team. How did, how did you market past that? That's not even a conversation anymore. And I would imagine you're gonna get past and are already getting past the, the stereotype that you had just mentioned now, like, oh, that person's going to the MLS, they must be ending their yeah. career. Yeah, I think it's a really good question, Paul. And I, and I not got asked that uh, very often. You know, I, you know, I think what it really speaks to is, you know, we have been trying to build a cultural connection between our players, our clubs, and those who care about the sport and ultimately where do we fit in the broader professional sports ecosystem here and internationally and building culture isn't you can't manufacture culture no you have to earn it you know you have to understand what motivates people what inspires them what influences them and it starts at a very young age in our sport we launched this league before people really had a deep connection with the game professionally but now if you're, you know, in your mid twenties, you grew up with MLS in your life. Yeah. You can be in your mid twenties or you could have been five or six years old and you could have your own family. You could bring your kids to the game if you were a young fan. And soccer in America has become such an important part of the American culture. 
and it didn't when MLS was launched. Hmm. And we had to just continually earn every day the ability to keep the lights on yeah. until we knew that cultural shift would happen. Not a tipping point per se, not a business tipping point, but a cultural shift. So when you see the World Cup in 02 and 06, the country stops during the World Cup. Yep. And whether the American team is in it or not, whether American women are winning it or not, people care about the sport at the highest level. And that's something that uh, is going to empower us for our next generation of growth. Yeah. I, th I think a lot about what David Stern did in the NBA, what the PGA was even up against in golf, what every sport new professionally has to take on. And you can do the organic growth over several decades, as you mentioned, where you capture a generation and their family. But ultimately, what precedes us is the affinity to international, so your nationalism, supporting your country, and then you can also tap into affinity through university. And that's why college football, college basketball, even college golf were bigger than the aforementioned professionally until the pendulum switched, where you have strategic operating teams that are going in and building within the community, building using modern media, tapping into sponsors to elevate the message, and then putting the athlete in front of screens and the next generation so that aspirational connection takes place. And then all of a sudden the NBA becomes bigger than college basketball. And then MLS has become bigger than college soccer and will and is becoming bigger than a lot of the leagues over in Europe. That type of manufacturing does take place in addition to the organic growth. The biggest moment that we all study professionally in sports business classes all the way to what we do as a league is that moment when you got together with your three owners at the time. So it was Phil Anschwitz, Lamar Hunt, as you mentioned, and Robert Kraft at that, I think it was Phil's ranch. And you put together a growth strategy. And one of which to your call out was to capitalize on the World Cup and all of the attention to the domestic rights, the English speaking language when the World Cup is in the US, how can you acquire those rights, bolt the MLS onto that and build momentum? Is that a little bit of it at, at its early stage? And then that led to Soccer United Marketing? I'm gonna go back before I get there and I'll give you the whole story of the ranch because it's a fun one. Okay. But what you were talking about as it relates to college and, uh, and why it's important in, in creating a relationship with a fan. You think about what alumni, what drives their desire to go to a basketball game or a football game, even if they're not basketball or football fans, is that team has some connection to their identity. They identify with their alma mater. You could speak to a Michigan fan today, and that person could be Steve Ross, who's you know almost 80, yeah. or it could be some young kid who's going to school now, and they love the blue and gold, and they will follow it. It doesn't matter who's playing for that team during that bowl game. They care about the brand. They care about that school. And that strategy works for many leagues. In the NBA's case, that identity is about the player. Now, I don't think it matters because the NBA is, to me, the hottest league in the world right now. And they're making a pile of money. Their team valuations are going up. There's an incredible buzz around it. And they figured out what works for them. In this case, the players, in many ways, in my opinion, more valuable than the team brands. Hmm. In most other sports, and the NFL was probably a hybrid of it, but in MLS, that identity, that, our supporters who are tattooing team logos onto their calves or onto their arms, yeah. they identify 
with that team. It matters to them. And that that's an important thing to build for any sport. Mm-hmm. How do you have something that matters to somebody that drives their passion and defines them in ways that allow them to not have to pay attention to their everyday lives? Mm-hmm. And I think the college analogy to MLS and the supporter culture is a great example. We think about that all the time. Hmm. I'm going to go to that meeting and, uh, you know, the growth strategy story is no different than any other business. You know, the, the league had burnt through a couple hundred million dollars. Those guys said, hey, you know, we need a plan, Don, because I'm not sure we're willing to put up another $250 million. And me and, and the team, a guy named Mark Abbott at that time, and Ivan Gazidis is now the CEO of uh, AC Milan. You know, we worked on a plan and we basically said, you're going to have to come up with another $250 million, and we can't tell you what it's going to look like after that. That's plan A. <laughs> By the way, I'd only been in the job for a couple of years. And I said, I'm kind of writing myself out of a job. I was a young guy. I didn't really care. Had a good experience. But we all went into that, Mark, Ivan, and I, thinking this is the end of our careers. And then we said, but we do have a plan B. And plan B is not only are you going to have to invest, you know, $50 million a year, but we need another near $100 million. We think if we buy the World Cup rights, because FIFA had not sold the English language rights to anybody. ABC had passed, NBC, CBS. We saw an opportunity and we knew that through our contacts uh, internationally. And we went out and said, we can take those rights. We could put it into a new company, put our rights into the company. We think we get U.S. soccer to sell us the rights, get the Mexican League to sell us the rights. That side business, you know, I say that, you know, sort of uh, casually, will feed additional revenues that will allow us to ultimately sustain ourselves and build value. And a couple of days later, they said, you know, because we all stayed there on his ranch and met all day and all night. Jonathan Kraft was at that meeting as well. Lamar Hunt was there with his two sons. Phil was there with Tim Laiwiki, who was very influential in that process. Also part of it, Paul, we had to fund some. Yeah. The owner of the Metro Stars and the owner of the Miami team said, I'm out. And then the two league operated teams in Tampa and San Jose, the guys who were operating said, we're not going to do that. We had to fold a couple of teams. We had to convince Phil Andrews to come out of that meeting and basically buy a half a dozen of the teams that were left. So they left. They, they were like, we're out. And then the other three stayed and we're like, we're in. Let's fund this. Yes. And Phil ended up taking over the league operated teams yep. and ended up buying a couple more teams because the guys who left, Phil Andrews bought the Metro Stars for a million bucks. Yep. I can assure you when he sold them to the Red Bulls, he sold them for a hell of a lot more than million dollars yeah right? so it was a good business decision on his part but he loved the game he was our you know he he was the guy like Josiah is in the, in the lacrosse business he was a guy that just really truly believed in the opportunity and you know we had a good plan we bought those rights we we sold the media associated with it we ended up packaging them and got a deal with ESPN the first time MLS was getting paid for its media we got U.S. soccer uh, rights packaged in U.S. soccer got paid for its media that Deal made money. We were able to deliver a good return on that $70 million investment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Cyber United Marketing today is valued at several billion dollars. Yep. Uh, it's a, a profitable business. And if not for that meeting, MLS is uh, another one of the failed soccer leagues in North American sports history. Okay, second break of the show. This is technically extra time to use the soccer reference, and we're gonna talk about our second presenting partner, that's OutSystems. They're a partner of the PLLs that keep our business going. They make apps that make the difference and solve the needs of your company. 
allow me to explain more. OutSystems empowers their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications so you can capture new markets, deliver new services, and win new customers. And that lives on the home screen of your mobile device. So the PLL app was built by OutSystems. And all you technical heads out there, they tackle your backlog, they leverage all the new tech, and they build a really great UI UX, which is your user interface and your user experience. And for us, last year, when they drafted that PLL app, that became our COVID health and safety protocol app that all of our players, coach, and staff members checked into daily so that we could continue to move day-to-day COVID-free. They also work with companies like Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, and many more reputable Fortune 500 businesses. So I recommend you, whether you're small or large, you can build the difference in your business with OutSystems at OutSystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ticketmaster. They are the official ticketing partner of the Premier Lacrosse League, our presented by partner as well. And at the PLL, if you caught this news this week, we announced our 2021 season schedule in tandem with the Ticketmaster team. And right now, you can go on Ticketmaster.com to buy your PLL tickets to the first five game weekends. We start at Gillette, and tickets are moving so fast because there's limited capacity at each of these venues. So... Go to Ticketmaster.com, or you can check us out at PremierLacrosseLeague.com and access the Ticketmaster portal there. They are the premium location to buy and sell tickets online for concerts, theater, family, and most importantly, sporting events. MLS is widely known in the ecosystem as a single entity, and uh, yet you have individual investor operators, but from the market's perspective, these are franchisees basically have two models. There's a trade association, which we're accustomed to seeing in the NFL with their 32 owners or so. And you have MLS that's on its path over the next few years to get to 30. But these are investor operators. Are are each of them owners in some and they have their pro rata positioning? Yes. And so you then transitioned the business structure at the time, which was single entity MLS, call it LLC. And you said, we're now going to operate some. Correct. And it's the same people, you know, it's uh, yeah. some really is no difference than at different than NFL properties or NHL enterprises. The, the only difference really, Paul, it's more kind of like BAM was right. when baseball launched best baseball advanced media in that 50% of its business is non MLS related, which is both strategic and, and uh, financially, uh, you know, uh, viable, right? It allows us to go out and take risk on intellectual property but also allows us to have strategic relationships, which I think, you know, I'll, I'll, just to take a big step back, Paul, the number one objective for some was to grow the commercial value of soccer in America. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to make money. It was that nobody believed that soccer was commercially important. So you'd go to Pepsi and you'd sell them an MLS deal and very small audience and only 12 teams at that time. But if you were able to aggregate and, and professionally operate the business, people started believing that soccer as a, as a, from a commercial partner could deliver them the value that a corporate partner would want, that a licensee like Adidas would want, or like a broadcaster like ESPN, Fox, or Univision would want. And we achieved that. If we've achieved nothing else, every international league and federation and confederation sees the United States as an ATM. And we created that. We created this fertile market for a soccer opportunity by basically professionalizing the way the sport was sold. 
So now anybody can come in and exploit that. Yeah. Uh, that was a good idea for them, but yeah. it worked out okay for us. <laughs> so you said at the beginning that you work just as hard and it's just as challenging and intricate now as it was 20 or so years ago. MLS had expanded from 10 clubs in 2004 to 30 by 2023. The original owners paid around five million bucks in '95, but then after that ranch sold off their stake for a million, which you had kind of called out, so the value went down. But in 2012, Montreal paid 40 million, New York and Minnesota, 100 million, Cincy, Nashville, 150, Sacramento and St. Louis, 200. Then the David Tepper news, which was kind of everywhere, 350 for the rights to operate. So this is a 500% increase in 10 years, just about, how do you go about selecting your next investor operators? I'd imagine that you're at a place now where that is different and potentially more important than it was for you 20 years ago, selling the next franchise and finding a buyer. That's probably the most important question that you could ask for anybody that's thinking about this business, whether it's you guys running your league or any other folks that are thinking there's so many leagues getting launched every day, the, the diligence and the priority and the focus on who our owners were from the original business plan to the first expansion where I, I did, which was in 05, bringing in Salt Lake and the what, team that was owned by the Trevis Guadalajara uh, group to where we are today with David Tepper. Your entire value is delivered by the character, the ethics, the capacity, and belief of your ownership. And if you don't have good owners that you can count on as good partners who have the capacity to see the vision through, that's a shared vision, you won't succeed. And that's never changed. It was as important then as it is now. Just a couple of facts, temper at 325, not 350. Uh, so, gotcha. but still, that's well, a, that's yeah, a I'm trying number. to give you a bump. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and again, in, in Sacramento, a deal that we didn't close, that's probably a good example. Like, listen, I'm not taking anything away from the guy who was looking at the team, but at the end of the day, he just was probably not as willing to accept what it was that he needed to do and the costs associated with that to go forward with that team. And that's okay, because I'd rather know that today. Because if you get make the wrong decisions today, yeah. they will kill you tomorrow. They won't just make your life miserable. They will destroy you as a professional sports league. And I've heard many owners say that the thing that stands out the most to the industry is we have one of the greatest ownership teams in ownership groups in all of sports. Mm -hmm. Meg Whitman in Cincinnati teeing up with the leading family, uh, the Lindner family. John Ingram, one of the most important families in Nashville, owning our new Nashville team. You know, David Tepper in Charlotte, the Crafts and Hunt and Arthur Blank in Atlanta, Hank Paulson and his son in, in Portland. Now, these are people, the Hunt family still in Dallas. These are people that have a real belief in our sport. They say it all the time, Paul. They say, we, we want to kill each other on the field, but we're partners when it comes at the decisions that we need to make in order to grow this business together. And they expect the league, the commissioner, to govern that. And they're laser focused on it. Yep. They, they are incredibly engaged at committee levels, whether it's a finance committee, a governance committee, a product committee, we call it product strategy committee, expansion committee, diversity committee. They all, it's a full-time job for an owner. I, Steve Kaplan, who owns our team in DC United 
former Memphis Grizzly owner, and he owns Swansea FC, his partner, Jason Levy, and also an experienced sports guy. I mean, I speak to him almost every day. Yeah. I mean, he's he can do a lot of stuff, right? A former founder of Oak Tree. Uh, but he's really focused on Major League Soccer. Yeah, that's that's one of the worst things that can happen. And, and this I see this a lot with emerging leagues is that they get financing or they have owners who view sport as if it is waterfront property. And especially a sport like lacrosse in its early stages, I can get in and perhaps this was some of the MLS owners back in the early 90s. I can get in at one five million bucks. And if Don Garber and his team does, does their job, it'll be worth 50, 100, 500. And they don't actually operate because it, it is equally their job to, as owners, build in the community. And that was what I believe one of the biggest problems in Major League Lacrosse prior to us building the PLL was, is that there was this assumption, again, as fans do in sport, they see participation growth increase, they see more eyeballs during the college Final Four, and they go, oh, that's going to impact the pro game. But there's a reason why there are more bottom-up sports than there are top-down. And there's a reason why we see so many disciplines in the Olympics once every four years and never see the pro game. Because it is a significant investment, requires full-time operating horsepower from some of the most intelligent people uh, that have often in that position because they've been successful in other sectors. So getting them to commit is a big piece. There was just an article in The Athletic today. It was talking about valuations. I think the key challenge with, with many emerging leagues, and, and we're seeing it work positively finally with the, the, the Women's Soccer League, the NWSL, yep. is that they're willing, the, the new owners are willing to invest. Yep. And if they're able to see a return, they're investors. They're passionate about the game, but at their heart, they're investors, Paul. And it, it, unless teams are underwater, and you start seeing sales happen that are not capturing what they paid and what they had to invest. As long as people could make money, they'll invest yeah. because they're wealthy people and they have a lot of opportunities uh, to invest in those things that may or may not be as passionate about this uh, as their sports investments. You know, we're seeing professional athletes now coming into investing in MLS. Many of them just view purely as an investment. And hmm. so far, you know, knock on wood, so good. You stay in there. You know, you're going to make money. Look at look at what happened with the valuations in the NFL with their new media deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, the values probably went up a billion dollars a team. Yep. Look at what's going to happen with the NHL teams with their new media deal. And while the, the league, people like you and me have to go out and drive that value, uh, at the end of the day, if the owners don't do their job, then we've got nothing to sell. Yep. I guess, you know, broadcasters aren't just going to pay because they like us. So yep. We're smarter than the next guy and we have a better mousetrap, they want to know that people care about it. Do you find it difficult to answer what often is, at least uh, seems like a repetition of questions around the delta between people viewing sports as a race to profitability versus building enterprise value? You know, Jeff Bezos, I think, is responsible at Amazon for really shifting market reads from day traders around looking at a stock moving forward in the black versus being okay with living in the red as long as you're reinvesting and showing top line growth. And I think with sports, we often hear, at least with startup leagues, how long until you're profitable? And it's like, I'm not sure we wanna be profitable because what we wanna do is take our growing revenues year over year, which is, should be your question, 
what are your year over year growth expectations, and then reinvesting those to your point, building the pie of interest in soccer in the 90s and 2000s versus owning the existing market share. So when people ask you that, or you see articles in Forbes and they talk about this team losing X, I mean, most teams in the NHL lose anywhere from seven to 10 million bucks unless they make the second round of the playoffs because player costs are so high, that's gonna shift now with the rights deal. But what, what do you say to that? I, just exactly what you said, I get asked all the time. <laughs> I think people are tired. I've been doing this long enough, but people are tired of me giving the same answer or I just refuse to answer it, right? Because okay. I think it's a lazy question hmm. that when are you going to be profitable? We can be profitable today. Yeah. We just don't have to spend as much money on growing our business. But our goal is to achieve profitability. And our, we believe the path to profitability is to invest enough into the enterprise so the event enterprise itself becomes so valuable that others are willing to pay us for that value and therefore have that whole circle come around. And I, I think the industry, if you know, I, I didn't go to business school, but I think it would be a great business school study. It, it's proven to be true, right? You, if, if you look at the where the MBA was 20 years ago versus where it is now, they invested, 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 and all of a sudden hit sort of the, the, the magic turn, which was to get enough mass so that media partners cared about it commercial partners and venture partners like people in China cared about it. And then all of a sudden you move over to having enough revenue so that you don't have to invest any further and you can start making distributions. Uh, but we're still in the investment mode. Well, I mean, we do have some teams that can hit it out of the park. I mean, Atlanta, they're selling 60, 70,000 fans a game, which is what they're doing. It, you know, you could turn a profit. You don't have to spend, right. you know, what they spend on designated players. I think they, they believe it's part of their brand and part of why 60, 70,000 people will watch their games. But, you know, that team could be profitable tomorrow. Seattle could be profitable tomorrow. Yep. You know, you also have the wild card, which I'm sure you experience. Owners actually do this because they want to win. Yep. And as I I'll go full circle to the uniqueness of this false, almost a false economy in this pro sports business, Jeff Bezos really isn't thinking about winning every day. I'm sure he's not measuring his wins with, his net worth or his stock price, yeah. right? His, his win is, you know, how, how did we do and how do we deliver to our consumer? But nobody's losing there. Like right. Some might argue that maybe maybe there are things, depends on what your politics are, but sports industry, these guys actually want to win. Yeah. And that is a part of the brain. You really can't measure. You can't measure what motivates an owner. It'd be a great podcast for you. Get on an owner and say, why do you do what you do? Yeah. And they'll probably tell you it's my passion and my community. And at the end of the day, if you really dug in, these guys spend way more time than you think they would on picking their coach and their general manager, going to games, jumping around on the sidelines. I've had to suspend owners from running on the field and yelling at officials. Yeah. It, so it sounds no like uh, sounds like Mark <laughs> Cuban's in your league. He was our he was the, the first guest of this season. And I, I pushed him a little bit because he gave uh, repetitive responses that he doesn't give a shit about the economics. He just wants to win. And I know he's he, he's also very mindful of what that means to new talent that he's bringing into Dallas. N nothing is binary, especially in, in our business, but you're absolutely right that the unabashed uh, competitive spirit of, of a lot of these sports owners starts and ends with their ability to win. So the last thing is you have MLS coming up season's back. Uh, we've made it through 
uh, most of the pandemic. We were both in our bubbles. I've, I've never dreamed about knowing as much. And in the grand scheme of things, it's very little about infectious disease in my life. I know uh, you probably feel the same, but there are protocols. We're still monitoring state by state capacities and venues. Are you predicting a comeback in 2021 and then maybe even 22 or 23 that could be bigger than prior to the pandemic just because we've been inside for so goddamn long? So Paul, we, we were particularly, you know, it wasn't we're all hit, every, every, just about every business in the yeah. world was hit. Live event business, restaurants and the musics and the music business and lives got hit particularly hard, but we operated, right? The music industry shut down. Yep. So their pain was lack of revenue and jobs and, and really things that were critical to, to the entire industry the ecosystem of the music business. But the sports industry operated. You know, I, I was speaking to the president of the league yesterday. It was one of my first days back in the office in New York. This guy, Mark Abbott, who was one of the founders of the league, and he created the protocols for the bubble and the post-travel uh, protocols. And he said it was an experience that was so all-encompassing that he doesn't think he'll ever be the same, hmm. that it took so much out of him, the risk, the responsibility, the time, you know, we went through three CBAs in 14 months. Imagine doing one in seven years, five years, we did three in, in 13, 14 months. So, you know, it was enormously challenging. I believe we'll be back better than we, we thought. It was our 25th season in 20. Yeah. We had to shut it down. We had a, two new teams, Miami and Nashville. We had almost 60,000 at the opening Nashville game. We still haven't had an opening game to speak of in Miami, we'll have one, you know, in, in April. But at the end of the day, I, I do think we'll have a, our version of the Roaring Twenties. People want to come back. People want to, they're cooped up. They've saved a lot of money. They've gotten their checks. They want to go and just expand, just express what they were and what life was like. And I think their affinity for sport and their favorite teams will give them that opportunity. I think the year will be a little better than we thought it would. We're seeing openings happening faster than we budgeted for. And I think 2022 will be back to normal. Yep. I, I hope 100% back to normal. I hope so too. Don, I'm uh, looking forward to going to a game this April, May, June, before our season starts and hopefully seeing some fans in the stands with their team's tattoo on their calf and shoulder and, and that type of affinity that you've built over the past couple of decades. The first time we met, you were being recognized for a perennial award at an SBJ banquet. Um, and I listened to you stand up and talk. And I, I probably don't even remember. I just shook your hand and, and that was it because everyone was there for you. But uh, I appreciate all the time that you put aside to have these conversations. And now that we could finally record one, um, but it means a lot and uh, best of luck. Great. You too, Paul. You're doing a great job. And uh, you're one of the guys that I think is going to carry this industry forward in the generation to come. So keep doing what you're doing. And I think your league will benefit by that, but I also think that, you know, you got a lot to contribute to our industry and uh, we're all proud of you, so keep it up. All right, that's the show. Big shout out to Commissioner Dom Garber of the MLS for coming on to Talk Shop. I love these types of conversations. One of my first ever podcasts was with the executive director of the NFLPA, DeMarie Smith. His son plays at Maryland now. You should check out that show. We talked about collective bargaining agreements all the way through rights that trickle down from league to teams to players. This conversation was particularly helpful. Learning from the person who built 
major league soccer in a world where we're trying to build professional lacrosse. And for respect and reciprocity purposes, here's a quick promo for the upcoming MLS season. There are 27 teams. It's Austin FC's debut season. In an effort to limit travel because of COVID conditions we're still in, they're doing mostly conference play with teams nearby. Fan policies are similar to ours. Most clubs will allow 20 to 30% attendance of capacity of venue, though a few will allow closer to 50%. Here's how you watch. ESPN, Fox, and Univision carry national broadcasts. All other games will be available to stream on ESPN+. Plus minus the local blackout restrictions. That's a whole nother show. Now, please consider subscribing to Suiting Up. You can do it on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods. And while you're at it, give us a short rating and review. That goes a long way. And let Commissioner Garber and I know what you thought on Twitter. I'm at Paul Rabel, and he is at The Soccer Don. This show is presented by Public.com. Thank you, Public. You create a whole new way to invest. They also make the stock market social, so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money Follow me and other creators. I'm at Paul Rabel. I talk about things like other sports leagues, teams, media, tech, and the best vegan companies that are public and available to invest in. So not just sports. Check out public.com. And thank you, OutSystems. They provide tools to help companies quickly build apps from web to mobile to ensure that you can focus on your company goals when it came to the PLL. They helped us design our COVID app last summer and will continue to help us design our mobile apps into the future that helped us pull off a tournament for the ages in 2020, and we're excited for our tour-based model into 2021 with that same COVID health and safety protocol for our players, staff, coaches, and now fans. Check out OutSystems.com. And finally, everything made possible here by our incredible team at PLL Podcast. This show is produced and edited by Nick Bailey and Brett Roberts. Research done by Andrew Manning. Graphics and designed by Liam Murphy. This was coordinated by RJ Kaminsky and our overtime newsletter written by Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week.